Good morning. For those of you still looking, it's on page 930 in the Pew Bible. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with, with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Imnason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. Please pray with me. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for bringing us together today. We thank you for filling this room back up, Lord, for keeping us well during this time, for uh, your provision for all of us during this time, Lord, even if it was different than what we were used to. We're grateful. We thank you, Lord, for the friendships represented in this room. We're thankful, Lord, for the visitors that we haven't yet been able to make friends with. Lord, we, we thank you for the faithful preaching of your word. We ask that above all else, you continue to make that a strength of this church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've heard from some of you about our study in Acts. I know I certainly have felt it as I have gone along in our study that this passage, maybe, maybe particularly from some of the other passages we, we have looked at thus far, uh, feels quite ominous. Um, the, the art of storytelling would tell us that you, you, you must take the main character to the lowest potential place and, and then bring him out to a point of favorable resolution. And we've seen what Paul has stated in terms of his knowledge by this Holy Spirit of where he's going to Jerusalem. We know he knows 
what awaits him. Uh, And even in our first few verses here this morning, in verses one through six particularly, just the speed by which the narrator draws us through this passage seems to hasten our steps to a place where we must ask the question, this How can this possibly end well? And in fact, don't let me burst your bubble, but it doesn't end well for the Apostle Paul. We don't get the the final epitaph, if you will. We don't get Paul in the tomb by the end of Acts, but we, we know how it ends for Paul. And even as we study, though, this morning, we have to remember that though this may seem ominous for Paul, this is not an ominous passage because Paul's not the main character. The book of Acts is the work of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ as the main character will continue to shine as he does even this day through his word. But Paul set before us here, how does Paul deal with this ominous potential turn in the story of the gospel and the growth of the church? How does he handle this pressure? And I think we must realize this morning that Paul has a very clear understanding. I've, I think two specific things, and we'll draw them out this morning, is one, a, the call of the gospel, and two, the work of the gospel that, that has stiffened his spine, if you will, that has stiffened his resolve as a committed believer, to press forward for the sake of Jesus Christ. And, and, th- and therefore, by way of example, the, the text before us calls us to this as well. That as we have a clear understanding of the call and work of the gospel, it will stiffen our resolve as committed believers to press forward for the sake of Christ. Well, we, we will look Uh, First, if you will, on the flip side, we'll we'll see the work of the gospel. And I'll draw out what I mean by that phrase here in a moment in this first section and a little bit toward the end, 15 and through 17. And and then we'll we'll settle uh, by way of reflection toward the end here uh, in verses 13 and 14 with Paul's statement there to to the church. Look with me at verse 1 through verse 6. This is my first point. If you're taking notes, I've just entitled this Encouragement Along the Way. Uh, Paul is journeying from Miletus. We were there last week. The Ephesian elders had been called from Ephesus to come to Miletus. We can remember that Paul passed right by Ephesus. Uh, Many there, through his years of work, would have taken him probably much longer than he desired to be in Ephesus to greet everyone. He needs to get to Jerusalem. He goes to Miletus, calls the Ephesian elders, and we're launching from Miletus, and we're getting all the way in these first six verses over to the city of Tyre. And we we zoom, literally, by way uh, of a, a boat ride through a number of different places. We go by Kos, which is an island, You'll see that in verse 1. We go to Rhodes, which is a region. Uh, They go through Patera, which is a coastal city. They get to Phoenicia, which is another region. Uh, You can remember Cyprus. Uh, Cyprus was was way back in our study of Acts. It was within Paul's first missionary journey. Even as I was uh, thinking about this sailing by Cyprus, and you note the detail, we, we go by it 
it's on our left side. I can even think of Paul, maybe, as he's standing on the deck and the ship is swaying and he hears, Land ho! Cyprus to the left! And just the, the, the thoughts, the emotions that would have run through his mind thinking, I was on that island nine years ago. First missionary journey. A rookie, if you will. Sailing back by this thing nine, ten years later. At the end of my third missionary journey. Oh, what God hath wrought. And the resolve he has is he sails by it. Knowing the churches he has helped plant are, are behind him now. And he's sailing into the, the teeth of the lion, if you will. Goes by Cyprus. Gets to Tyre. They land there. The ship must unload its cargo. Whether it's by way of waiting for another ship or a seven-day unloading period, we're not sure. But they're there, verse 4, for seven days. They then go and seek out the disciples in this coastal town. And you note the disciples there in this town through the Spirit telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. If you've been with us some time, that would pose a problem for us theologically. Wait a minute. We thought Paul in the Spirit, you've told us, chapter 19, chapter 20, resolved in the Spirit, got to get to Jerusalem. Now the Word's telling us, the Spirit's telling other people to tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Who's right? Who's wrong? Well, I'm not going to answer that question right away. Let's wait. We'll get to 11 and 12 and we'll look at that more deeply. When our days there, verse 5, were ended, we departed, went on our journey. You can just see this band of people. Who knows how large, but wives, children, all moving in mass to the beach Launching Paul, kneeling down, waves crashing. You can hear it saying farewell to one another. On board the ship, Paul's into the distance. They wander back up to the beach, up the beach back home. When I, when I stated at the beginning, a clear understanding of the call and work of the gospel... I speak of the, I, I, I wanna, what I mean by that, by the work of the gospel, is that the gospel does a work to unite all types into a family unit that leans shoulder to shoulder with one another. Note here, Paul's means of strengthening, means of encouragement along the way for Paul and his mates. It's the disciples, it's the church. It's the church of Jesus Christ. In some places, Paul is even seeming here in, in Tyre seeking out the church for encouragement. And the only illustration that, that came to mind is the one of a three-legged race. Undoubtedly, probably all of us have had the fame and fortune of being a part of such an event where you have chosen someone and you have strapped yourself to them and you have hobbled and fumbled and stumbled down some course to get to a finish line. 
And, and I don't I'm not, I think it's helpful for us. Picture in your mind some of those who you've seen. Undoubtedly, we've all seen and I have been the father who looks at the race and looks at the child who wants to run with me and thinking, we've got no hope to win this thing. So kid, come on. And you sweep the kid up, right? And you got him strapped. But who cares about their leg? We've got to win this thing. And you roar down the raceway, right? Passing people as they yell, cheater! Right? Or you get the two little giggly girls. They're four and five years old. They're clueless. There's even a race going on. But they're so sweet. You've got the middle school boys who approach the other with an eye of measurement. Let's see. He's about 32 kilos. Looks like he can run a 440 and a... Yeah, I think it's about my size. Height is in centimeters because these things have to be precise if I'm going to strap myself, him, strap him to this rocket engine, right? We've seen this. And I mean to put this in, in funniness. What's the maximum speed? Then you have the high schoolers. And so high schoolers, I'll draw you out. Okay, high schoolers. There's a few of them. <clears throat> I'm too cool for this at the moment. I did that as a middle schooler. And then some dad goes, you're going to lose. And they go, okay, here, come on, let's go. They jump right in. You get the point. There are all types, all tied to one another, dependent upon each other to get to the finish line. And the one that wins will have struck the perfect balance of exerting the maximum effort of leaning toward one, one another, toward their running mate, and pressing forward to the line. You have to find that, that, that perfect balance. And that's the Christian life. You get someone there's different teammates that come along in the Christian life and sometimes you're the one doing the bulk of the work like dad and sometimes they're the one doing the bulk of the work and then sometimes you hit this sweet spot for just a short period of time where you have this friend, you have this loved one that seems to be matched just right and you really are able to make some movement forward. The Christian life is probably much more three-legged race than relay, relay race. And we have to all recognize we would prefer the relay race. Who cares about the slow person? I'm faster than everybody else. Just leave everybody behind. Run them over if we need to. We've got to win this thing. And I'll throw the baton at you when it's your turn. Right? That's sort of the way we think. Just leave it to me. And yet, the work of the gospel is that it unites people. We need one another. Not at our best, but at our worst. We're to lean on one another in weakness, not in strength. First Thessalonians 4.18, Paul is encouraging a number of ways. I'll just note three, two or three passages here. First Thessalonians 4.18, therefore encourage one another with these words. It goes on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. The writer of Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This three-legged race requires humility. And frankly, if we want to borrow the vernacular of the Christian life being a three-legged race... You can't be in the race unless you have somebody with you. There's no lone wolf Christians. Someone has said before, the Christian life is never pr private. It's personal, but always public. 
This family of God, it's a fruit of the gospel, is what encourages Paul along the way to potential imprisonment and even death. It's what strengthens him along this journey. It's what encourages him. And we saw this even last week in Paul's farewell address to the Ephesians. We're going to see it more this week. If you're looking at your text, look at verse 4. He seeks out the disciples. We just saw that. Look at verse 7. What do they do when they get to Thomas? We greeted the brothers. Verse 8, entered the house of Philip the evangelist. Verse 15, some, excuse me, 16, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Imnashan. This early disciple who must have been an encouragement to Paul, he's still walking faithfully after all these years. Being in Philip's house, Philip now in this particular place, probably 20 years removed from when we first saw Philip in Acts chapter 8. Get yourself a friend to run with in the church, male if you're male, female if you're female, and spur one another on toward Christ. And it can be as simple as reading the Bible, praying, and asking one to pray for a specific person in your life that you want to share the gospel with. This is an encouragement to Paul, and it's, mean, it's, it's meant as a means of grace to encourage us along the way as well. But all of this is obviously moving toward what is taking place in verses 13 and 14. So let's look at the second section here. Verse 7 through 17, Paul's resolution to the death or resolved to the death. They're, they're in Tyre, so they're very near Jerusalem now. Tyre is a coastal city. Tolmai is a port city. They're moving south. We've noted Philip's house 20 years have passed. Imagine him walking in. You could feel you got four girls. Man, what's up? It's been a while. These girls indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's our passage there, our, 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 our verse there in verse 9. Philip, the evangelist, the, one of the deacons, one of the seven, he stays with them. And then, and then he goes on, he's, he's in Caesarea. 65 miles now to Jerusalem. While there, this prophet comes, Agabus. We saw Agabus over in chapter 11, verse 28. He prophesied of a coming famine and he, he acts out this prophecy. He comes into the house. He takes Paul's belt, which is probably much more than just a belt like we think, but quite a wrap, something that was lengthy. Ties his hands, his feet. And makes this statement. Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Now some would love nothing more than to state boldly and obstinately right here, see, I told you, the Bible contradicts itself. And no, it doesn't. But what do we do with the fact that Paul in chapter 19 and 20 is resolved in the spirit to go to Jerusalem, yet here the spirit's speaking through others, making clear of what's going to happen in Jerusalem. How do we handle these things? Does Paul not listen to counsel? Are the prophecies wrong? Are they right? Are they of the Holy Spirit or are they false? 
Well, if we go with these are false prophecies, then we have the difficulty of seeing every prophecy or leading of the Holy Spirit as possibly false. Because there's no indication in the text that they're potentially false. The text gives us no indication. The next text then we would arrive to that has a leading of the Holy Spirit, a prophecy, we would have to make room in that text to be potentially false. See the conundrum here? It's a dangerous way to read the Bible, to read stuff into the text that's not there. The verse doesn't say in verses 4 and 11 that these prophecies were not of the Spirit of God, but of the Spirit of man. If it said that, well, then this is easy. But it doesn't say that. John Stott's commentary is helpful to me here. He suggests, and I would agree, that the best solution to this apparent problem is to understand the difference between a prohibition, don't do this, from a prediction of this is what will take place. So verse 11 is clearly a prediction accompanied by this acting out. If you go, the Holy Spirit is testifying, as he's already told you, Paul, in chapter 20, that imprisonments and afflictions await. This is what it will look like. Verse 4 is more difficult then. But I don't think we have enough information in verse 4 to state that it's any different than verse 11 as a prediction. Having sought out the disciples, reading from verse 4, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go unto Jerusalem. There's a lot left there. But what do we know to be true? Well, what we do know is that the writer is very clear, Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that Paul's getting to Jerusalem is designed by God and being led by the Holy Spirit. He speaks of Paul's decision in the affirmative. And we can be reminded of what we know clearly true, Acts 19.21, resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Paul constrained, bound, directed by the Spirit very clearly. Last week, chapter 20, verse 22. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. The earliest readers of this book would not have had to think hard to conclude that the Christian led by the Spirit is provided the faith to face with resolve trials of every kind. Now, if you just cover verse 13 and 14 and you didn't know what was said in 13 and 14, you got to the end of 12, it's as if the story has reached this point where what is Paul going to do? Everybody is pleading with him. We've got a man on the ground bound in Paul's belt and all the pressures on Paul. Will he bend? And in fact, he does not. What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And I love verse 14. Since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. We tried. Acts 18, 21 Paul, as we would remember in our study there, operates by the will of the Lord, and so do these disciples here. 
They entrust him to the Lord. And then they make this final journey down Jerusalem. And the amount of nerves and anticipation must have been quite a bit. It's not Christ to Gethsemane, but it's Paul's version. A clear understanding of the call and work of the gospel stiffens the resolve of the committed Christian to press forward for the sake of Christ. Some of you have heard of him. Some of you have not. Of the boys, Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, and those guys in 1956 who died at the hands of the Aka Indians in Ecuador seeking after some period of time to prepare to go down there and get the gospel to a very harsh tribe of Indians who'd never had the gospel get to them and all the plans and preparations and never getting into the village and dying on a riverbed. How do those guys see a man or a woman rushing them with a spear They're athletic. They're strong. They've taken with them a gun. How do they take the spear in the chest? How do you do that? How do you, how do you go to Jerusalem knowing someone's going to beat the tar out of you? How does Paul get such a resolve for Christ? What, what super miracle pill is he taking? What potion is he sucking down at night to give him this seemingly steely resolve, invincibility like these guys, Nate, Saint, Jim Elliot, and we could just keep going in terms of names of people who've done this. Is it available to us? Well, yes, it is. Would you go with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8? Let's just spend the remaining few moments we have here and a few passages to consider what it means to have a clear understanding of the call of the gospel. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. If you remember from our study in Mark, this is the pivotal moment in the book. This is the middle of the book. This is the huge transition in the book where Peter declares Christ as Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Christ begins to articulate what the Son of Man must do. And I want you to look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, And this is the call of the gospel. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, 
Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, I fear America, we are not a very good description of that. It's awfully easy these days. But the call of the gospel is to follow Jesus Christ, denying ourselves and giving of our life if necessary. Philippians chapter 3, turn there with me. What does Paul say here? Well, he takes Mark 8 and he runs it through the narrative that we have in Acts chapter 21 and he gets to this writing of the Philippians or we do by way of our study of the scriptures and look what he says in chapter 3 verse 2 through 9 and maybe if you were with us last week you'll be thinking about his encouragement to the elders and the warning of the el- to the elders in Ephesians in, in Ephesus of what's going to take place when he leaves and look what he says look out for the dogs look out for the evildoers look out for those who mutilate the flesh for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. In this morning, this morning the, all I could, uh, the only song was running through my head and I don't know why I'm in the Lord's army anybody remember that from little kids days I'm in the Lord's army I shall never march in the infantry fly over shoot the artillery anybody remember that but I'm in the Lord's army is the way it goes there isn't a special potion for guys like Paul there's not one for Jim Elliott William Borden Charles Spurgeon the like There are unique circumstances. There are unique giftings for each individual. But the same calling upon their life is on ours as well. Listen, you young people have got to really think about this. Because you're sitting in church, which means that you have parents that love Jesus enough to take you to church. And you're watching some older guy in his 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s sing a whole lot louder than you think is publicly permissible and wondering, what is this? Could I take a spear to the chest? If I died today, what are they going to say about me? I remember those days. I'm not in my 20s anymore, but I'm not that far removed. And I had the same question because my father and mother took me to church. And when my mother, grandmother died in 2003, that was my question. I know what they will say about her at her grave. I don't know what they'll say about me at 21. 
Is this the stuff I'm made of? Is this Christianity thing that real to me that I'll take a spear in the chest for the name and glory of Jesus Christ alone? And now I'm 36 and I'm asking the same question. And I'd ask it of you as well. The Lord's army has all and every type, but all and every type are to be committed to the banner of Jesus Christ, the name on the standard in battle, if you will, to the point of death. And if you're thinking, well, I'm not Paul, I'm certainly not Charles Spurgeon, is there any room on the battlefield for guys like me, girls like me? Well, yes, let's just spend a few moments to spin through four or five disciples. I'm headstrong. So was James and John. Those guys couldn't walk down the road without getting into an argument, without getting into a little bidding war. I bet I can jump over this ditch farther than you can. And they just, these sons of thunder. What about, I'm, I'm too impetuous. I'm not as steady as I should be. Well, you've got Peter who speaks first and then thinks later. I've got to see it to believe it. I've never experienced it. Well, you've got Thomas. I started fast, but I feel like I'm faltering. Well, you have Philip, who's right out of the gate, goes and gets Nathaniel and says, come, I found him. We found the one that the prophets and the law have spoken about. Come see him. And at the end, what does he get to? Show us the Father and we'll get it. Every type in the Lord's army has the spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead within them, leading them, exhorting them, prompting them, prodding them, convicting them, encouraging them, and calling us to work in conjunction with him. I might ask you this morning, if you're here today and you've never thought about what it means to follow Jesus Christ, and now you've got some guy you've never met talking about dying, and you're wondering... What did this man Christ do for sinners like me? Well, let me tell you. He took much more than a spear. He took the entire wrath of a holy God, the holy God that created the heavens and the earth. A God who must, because of his perfection, not allow any imperfection, not allow any sin not just a few, any period, that one stray thought, that one improper deed, can't be in his presence. And he took all of his wrath and fury and punishment of which he promised, which is death upon us as sinners. And he took it over here and he put it on his son who was perfect and blameless. And his son bore that weight as only he could in order that those who look to Jesus Christ might be saved. For some of us this morning that are believers, we need, to, we need to spend some time thinking about that gospel more, more often. The gospel to some might be, well, I, I know Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I know he was raised again on the third day. I know he ascended into heaven. And I'm just thinking about those three things over and over and over again. It's getting me nowhere. I'm weary all you say is look to the gospel and it's not working for me. I ask you this morning, have you opened the scriptures and studied the why behind the death, resurrection, and ascension? 
Have you considered the implications of the state of your soul without such a death and resurrection? Have you given some time to considering the driving force for someone to die an undeserved death for someone else? And as we do that, we must be reminding ourselves as the book of Acts is here for us that to follow Jesus Christ is not going to be an easy path. Jesus himself told us the way to heaven is the narrow hard road, not the easy peasy wide road. And we must then be very careful on that narrow road to feed our souls with sustenance for faith and not for doubts and or fears. What is it that would stir us from our spiritual lethargy? It was the cross and resurrection that did it for the disciples and it's still the cross and resurrection that does it for us. And when we don't feel like feeding our souls on the truth of the gospel, what do we do? Well, the Christian lives by faith, so the Christian sticks his nose back in the book and expects the feelings to follow, knowing in faith that they will. Paul's resolution to the death was one of faith, and so is ours. So I'll leave you this morning with a few lines from a poem that was put into song, a poem written in 1922. You may have heard of the hymn. I'd rather have Jesus than worldly applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. A clear understanding of the call and work of the gospel stiffens the resolve of the committed Christian to press forward for the sake of Christ. If you find that your resolve is less than stiff, then may I encourage you this morning, spend some time in this word and allow and plead with God to do a work in you to strengthen that resolve and understanding of the call and work of the gospel that you might have The desire of this hymn, I'd rather have Jesus also be that which is in action within your life. All for his glory. Let's pray. Father, would you help us? I know that many, if not most, that are here would desire, as I do, to have this level of resolve, commitment, passion, pursuit. And we wonder how to do it. We wonder if it's worth it. We wonder if we, we have the, the stuff within us like others that have come before us. Maybe we, maybe we don't have it. I wonder if we do. Our heart's desire is that the world would know that our desire is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Father, help us to be people of the book. We feed our faith often the wrong things. 
that which strengthens faith and fear and doubt, not faith in Christ. And Father, we would pray that you would help us. This isn't a, something we, we just walk up to and we, and we get an IV and we walk out feeling better. This is, this is a life calling not just a shift of gears. And yet, Father, for some of us on this journey of life, it's time we shift gears. It's time we leave behind some things that have been entangling us, press forward, fresh resolve and fresh grace from your word. Father, help us as a church to run well together. The friend to the right or left. Frankly, some to the right and left we might not want to run with. But you've called them to this church. You've given them to us as part of our body. They may not want to run with us at times. But may our unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ be that which presses us hard together. And rather than fighting and pulling away, we would actually lean that much more intensely against that other shoulder. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity we've had to sing, study your word. And now here in a few moments, fellowship with one another. All for your glory. In the precious name of Christ, we pray. Amen.